All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck sticks? What the fucking ears? What the fucking Eastas? What's happening? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the show. All of those of you who are insulated, perhaps uh, working in the Arctic, welcome. Welcome those of you in labs. Welcome all people who repair shoes. Welcome. How are you? I, this is an interesting show today. Going to uh, to uh, talk to uh, Aziz Ansari. As you know, sometimes on this show, uh, when fellow comedians have things to plug, and I have a relationship with that fellow comedian, and we want to talk about you know that project, uh, have them on for a shorty. That's what we call them. Behind your back, we call them shorties. So this would be um, theoretically an Aziz shorty. But uh, but it's not because Aziz and I got to talking about his new show, Master of None, and and the nature of it, the the reality of it. We sort of got into a nuts and bolts conversation, a little bit about you know making television. What sort of became a, a theme of our conversation is the idea that it, he is actually doing something that hasn't been done before, and in, in that uh, the uh, the diversity of his show. There, there just became a conversation about the uh, opportunities and the the possibilities of uh, working around the major networks to do things that haven't been done before. But uh, Aziz and I have a nice chat, and then sort of an interesting thing happened. Uh, Robert Trujillo, the bass player of Metallica, is involved with a, a movie that I saw a screening of early on. This movie is about uh, Jocko Pastorius. It's uh, there's a big event for the premiere of the film. It's a concert and the film that's going to be this Sunday, November 22nd at the Ace in Los Angeles. You can get tickets for that and get info on the screeners or pre-order the Blu-ray and DVD at Jocko, J-A-C-O, the film.com. Now, this is not any sort of paid plug. It's like I, I you know, maybe I should talk about this before I bring them on. But I this guy. You know, I'd always heard about Jocko Pastorius, and I'd always heard that he was this, you know, brilliant genius savant-like bass player that changed the entire game of bass playing. You know, he's on. You know, I think he played with uh, was it Weather Report and Joni Mitchell did a couple solo records, but that's not necessarily my kind of music, right? Fusion, Joni Mitchell, not necessarily the first things I listened to, or would necessarily even appreciate the bass so much. Uh, you know, in terms of focusing on it. And, and I'd always heard about him and the, the horrible, sad, sort of tragic end that he met. But it's just this tragic tale of a tortured genius, a pure artist that uh, I was asked to come see a rough cut of it. And I, I, I was thrilled about it and, and that it was happening. But these two guys are the best fucking rock bass players in the business. And they both came to talk about bass and talk about Jocko and to talk about the film a bit because I think it's an important film. And, you know, I'm a music guy. So that's exciting and that's going to happen. You're going to witness that. It's going to happen. It's going to happen right here on this show that you're listening to after Aziz Ansari. Yeah. So Aziz, me and Aziz, he's been on the show before, but uh, like I said, we were going to just kind of talk about his new show. We ended up talking about a lot of things, and we ended up sort of coming uh, around on some stuff, uh, you know, talking about, 
you know, the, the, the nature of television in a lot of ways. And uh, it turned out to be a much more engaging conversation than even I expected because I thought it was just going to be a little one and it turned out to be kind of a medium-sized one. All right, so this is uh, me and Aziz. As I said, uh, the show is Master of None. It's streaming now on Netflix. Aziz, uh, it's been a while since we were in here. When was it? How long I don't fucking it? know. You don't know. Don't you keep track? You're a very meticulous guy. Aren't you on top of this stuff? Where's the... I thought you had a some sort of large graph and table of your entire career that you just did like mathematics and everything was coming out fucking roses. Uh, is that some sort of strange Indian joke? <laughs> I hadn't thought about it, but uh, but you're doing you're doing great. I think the last time I saw you, we were in uh, we were it was coincidence. We were out of town. Why did we? What were we? Do, what? How come we were at that hotel? We were both in Boston. I can't That's remember right. Why, I, I can't remember why I was there. I think I was there for something for my book, and you right. were too. We were both doing something. For, I was doing uh, some weird conference thing. We were both doing this weird thing in Boston, and I was like, "Yo!" And then Paul Feig was there. Yeah, because he was shooting Ghostbusters. Yeah, it was one of those things where. You're by yourself in Boston, right? Like, ah, comedians. Yeah, Somebody, I know that please, guy. Let's let's hang out in the lobby. Let's eat dinner. <laughs> yeah, and then we talked for a while. Yeah. and you told me about the new show, and I had, mm-hmm. I knew nothing about it. Yeah, and, and then uh, but you, I enjoy talking to you. So what it's all good. well, what do you do? Do you have a place here now in L.A.? I I have a place here. Yeah, that I um got when I was doing Parks and Rec, but uh, I mainly live in New York now. So what do you do? You wait, but like you're just going to keep this place to hang out at. Yeah, I still come back, and I, I don't know if we do a second season, if we'll end up writing in L.A., so y- you never really know. Because the like guys are here, some of them? Alan lives here, uh, who I created the show with, and, and the writers we worked with last oh, time. Oh, yeah, what's here, it? So. Hold on. Let me, I thought I prepared. I did a little bit. Yeah, Alan Yang. Alan Yang. <laughs> yeah. yeah I got Alan, it. you must be referring to Alan, Alan Yang. Yang. Yes. <laughs> but uh, so when you guys created this, wasn't uh, the late Harris Whittles involved as well? He was. He was. Uh, he wrote with us until he passed, and he was. You know, when me and Alan weren't in the room, he was in charge of the writers' room, and and he was a big part of it. And uh, yeah, that was devastating, was awful experience. And you guys had known each other for a while, Harris and Alan, right? You're y'all from Parks and Rec, is that where? Yeah, I'd known Harris from stand up um, before he wrote on Parks and Rec, and he opened up for me on the road a few times. He yeah. opened up for me when. I did a show in Houston, and I met some of his family years ago. And so whenever I went back to Houston, I would see some of his friends and stuff. So I had a little connection to him from Houston as well. And I worked with him on a couple of scripts and movie scripts. And yeah. then when we were Alan and I decided to do this show, he was the first person we, we wanted to get to write with us. And that's how it, uh, and that's how it started? And then he, how many was he involved with uh, in terms of actually writing? The first few, or how did uh, you? It's hard. It's, it's no, I so know. crazy because I remember I- exactly the uh, moment of getting that phone call and everything. And so I know exactly how long it was and everything. He was he was there up until about like episode eight or something. Mm-hmm. I think. So most of them. For most of them, I remember. I, I, me and Alan were trying to figure out this one episode. And we were walking by ourselves, like we stepped away from um, the writer's room and yeah. we were kind of walking by ourselves and we were trying to figure out this episode and I got that call and, and it was insane and we just kind of 
we just, we couldn't even process it, and we just walked around for a while, and oh, it was it was. Uh, so, but in you know, it, you, you know, in light of uh, of that horrible thing, and just his, you know, the legacy of working with him, I I don't know that a lot of people know how a writing room works or how how that creative process in television works because mm-hmm. I'm in the middle of it now, and you know, how many when you were creating uh, Master of None, how many people? Like, who were the writers? Because, like, you know, you you know a lot of the same guys I do, and a lot of people who listen to this show know it, because I know, well, I don't know Alan Yang, but I knew Harris. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, that uh, um, Wareheim, Eric Wareheim's involved, right? Yeah, he acted in the show, and he directed um, four episodes. No writing? He didn't write on the show, no. So who was in the room? Like, who? how many people? Uh, myself, yeah. Alan, um, my brother, Anise. Is uh, he in show business? He is yeah, now. He, yeah, he, I... <laughs> It's interesting. He uh, he'd done kind of other jobs in in older younger. World. He's younger brother. He's he's uh, twenty five, and I was trying to think of people to hire. Just I wanted to get someone a little bit younger, and I just thought he would be great because I just know how funny he is in real life. And just it's interesting. I remember reading this thing with Greg Daniels once. Uh, Greg Who created the office? The office in and the U.S. Parks, and, and he would he would use writing samples that were non traditional. It wasn't always just like a spec script. It could just be an article someone wrote that was funny, or it, just different kinds of things that just showed that someone had um, an interesting sense of humor. Right, because in the room, that's sort of all that counts. I mean, ultimately, whoever's going to write the script is going to write the script. Yeah, the other stuff, the nuts and bolts stuff, can easily be taught. What can't right. be taught is like having that unique uh, comedic perspective. Sure. And he was always so funny. Like, he would be on email chains with me and, like, other comedy guys. Like, I have this long, like, bit email chain with him, my brother, and the Lonely Island guys. And he would just write these emails that made us laugh so hard. And I was like, Anise is really funny. He's a really good writer. And Alan knows him personally, too. And, and it was a no-brainer. So we were like, let's get Anise. That'll be a great idea to have, like, a young writer like him on board. And what's your dynamic with him, though? Was there brotherly shit going on? No, I think he, you know, he was very excited to be here and was a little bit shy at first, right. but he he grew as a writer in the room and, and he got a lot of stuff on, a lot of great jokes in the show that people quote are lines that he pitched. So there was him, uh, there was these, uh, this writing duo, these women, um, Sarah Peters and Zoe Jarman, Joe Mandy, who wrote on Parks. I just saw him. I, oh, love, yeah. I love Joe. Yeah, I did stand yeah, up with hilarious. him the other night. Very yeah. funny. Yeah, he came on as soon as Parks was done. Uh, he came on board and helped us out, and um, Harris was writing with us, and uh, who else? Uh, a couple of people popped in when they could. Uh, Andrew Weinberg, mm-hmm. uh, he wrote with us a little bit. Um, uh, Jason Wolner wrote a little bit, and um, Andy Blitz. If I left anyone out, please know in my heart, I, I really appreciated the work you did on the show, and it was it was a mistake, because I'm very nervous talking to Mark. No, you're not. I'm not. I'm just kidding. Yeah, uh, but okay, so, cause, so the hardest part about doing this stuff is, for me, and maybe for you, is breaking stories. Mm-hmm. It's tedious, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of tough to, if you have an idea. For example, like one of the episodes that was really hard was this episode called Indians on TV that we wrote. And we had this idea, we had so many ideas and the script went through so many drafts and it took a while to land on the, the story that we did and, and the plot mechanics that we landed on. And it just takes a while and a lot of writing on that show was just us just discussing things in the room and a lot of times we could be arguing about something and then Alan and I would be like, this is good, we should just put this argument in the episode. This is this is very real and interesting. Well, it, you know, that, that, that episode in particular is sort of provocative to me because I think a lot of people who watch this, it, it, but not necessarily myself, I mean, that story, that I have 
I've heard from a black perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, on some level, that story of like, you know, why do we have to play slaves? Why do we always got to play cl- criminals? Why do we always get like, but that there's been some progress along those lines in, in racial casting, but not still not a lot. But then to, to, to hear from an Indian perspective, like, because I've heard like Maz Jabrani do bits about it. And mm-hmm. maybe I don't know if you do actual comedy bits about it. But that story was really interesting to me because you would never see, uh, you know, someone do blackface. Yeah. To do uh, a black part, you know, certainly not in the modern world, if ever, but that actually happens. That you we're actually find one real source. Was that a real? That was a real thing, right? The Fisher Stevens. The Fisher Stevens yeah. thing. Well, what was interesting is after we did that episode, I talked to more and more people about this, and everyone has their version of it to an extent. We did an episode called "Old People," and this actress Lynn Cohen played uh, my girlfriend's grandma. Yeah, and. She talked to me and she was uh, when, and after she read the script and she was like, "This is great. I never get anything like this where it's a fully rounded character. I usually get these old people roles where I'm like getting hurt and hurting my hip or I'm a rapping granny." And I was like, "Oh, like that's her version of, you know, convenience store guy or whatever right. or taxi cab driver like sure. every I think part of it is all the people that do this stuff are younger people, so they don't have those stories in their head necessarily to tell and and when they think of old people they just think of them as props for whatever goofy gag or whatever, and they sure. don't always consider their lives as having some sort of compelling story they need to Full put into life. their things. Yeah. Right, and but you did that too also with, I, I think that another thing that most of like my generation has gotten away from, and my generation not being that much older than you, but like our grandparents, or maybe great-grandparents, you know, especially if you're like a Jew, like myself, that was the first generation immigrant story, mm-hmm. was the, you know, the Ellis Island, you know, it was all European, most of it, you know, uh, that first generation in the 1900s, but that's sort of like our connection to that experience, and yours is like your parents. Yeah. And that, that the, the, the story of a first generation immigrant who's not European, uh, and, and it's within the last 30 years, is you, you don't see a lot of that, and it, and, it, and it was interesting to me in watching that episode about you and um, uh, what's the other actor's name, the Asian kid, um, Kelvin, Kelvin Yu. Hey, yeah, Kelvin Yu. That that you know, it was just a uh, it, it's a very specific story that you may see in some independent films about that specifically, but you know, not in a mainstream comedy. Mm-hmm. But it also seems that the two of you, whether how true it is to the characters or not, are are insanely detached. From from the first generation immigrant story of the people that you grew up with, yeah, I think part of that is all part of it is the kids just not just not thinking about it, and I think another taking part it for of, granted, taking it for granted, and just be like, yeah, I guess it was hard. And then also, I think a big part of it is the parents are very closed off emotionally and don't share those kind of stories with the kids. I really learned a lot about those stories because I did that episode and asked my parents so many questions. Same with Alan. I think Alan knew a little bit about his dad's story. The story of, of the Brian character's dad in the show is, is pretty close to what happened to Alan's father, the story about the chicken and all those things. And with my dad, the stuff is is uh, pretty close to what happened to him as well. Your Indian heritage, is it important to you? I think it's obviously it's 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 something that defines who you are, where you're from, and but I mean, and do you think about it? Uh, I think you can't help but have it be a, a part of who you are and your life and how you interact with people. I don't think it's like a, every single moment I'm like I'm Indian, I'm Indian, I'm Indian. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's not that kind of thing, but I don't think anyone has that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I just read uh, Ta-Nehisi uh, Coates' book about the the black experience, and it seems to be pretty, you know, you know. That's a crazy book, right? Uh, but 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 clearly, half of it, most of it, is about that consciousness that is yeah unavoidable. That you know, at all times, in all situations. No, that's true. And there's a self-consciousness and a censorship that goes around with that. But it's almost like, you know, when he tells that story of being in the movie theater with his kid and that woman kind of pushes his kid, I feel like he's kind of, he kind of forgot for a second and then that happens and he's like, oh shit. I could get in real trouble just because. And it's a, that, that story is an insane story. And I think it, yeah. And, and I think it's like that for, for me, it's like, oh, I'll, I'll, it will be out of my head and then I'll get some script where it's like, oh, do an accent. It's like, oh, I forgot. Like, that's what people think (laughs) of Indian people and Indian actors. It it was interesting to me in, in seeing the character, which I imagine is pretty close to you, Mm -hmm. have a certain amount of surprise and distance from, from your own sort of heritage because you were so identified in the, and in the, in the show as well with the generation, the generational problems of, of, of where you're at just as a guy. It all seems pretty well integrated that um, that most of the show, uh, you know, you cover the bases around, you, you know, what people's assumptions are you ethnically and, and then the thing about with your parents. But but a lot of it is really just navigating uh, culture as, you know, a dude who's in his 30s trying yeah. to date and trying to... Exactly, just being a dude. But I think by virtue of just being an Indian guy and that being my life, these things do come up organically for me and for the character and and I think that's why it works in the show. Well, it, how did you figure out like I want to know what the meeting was where you're sitting in the writers room because like the the sort of recurring crew, you know, the 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 friends coffee shop uh, idea <laughs> of who you're hanging out with. Uh-huh. You know, you got your the Asian friend yeah. and then you've got a uh, uh, African American lesbian friend yep. and then you've got you know a big white doofus. The token the token white friend. <laughs> but so classically like kind of like <laughs> <you know? laughs> Well, there was no discussion of, oh, let's... It's interesting seeing this big reaction to the diversity in the show because it wasn't... I didn't expect it to be such a thing, but I I, I think what happened was this. What is the reaction? I'm not keeping... I'm well, sorry, like, I'm oh not checking God. every day. Well, <laughs> oh, I check everything. <laughs> Googling all the time. Uh, the reaction is, wow, I've never seen uh, y- you know a show where an Indian guy's having sex with someone. I haven't seen a, a, <laughs> an Asian guy who's not like... Uh, this super sure. nerd like you know there's articles about kelvin being like this this heartthrob in the show and you never see that there's no asian heartthrobs there's no usually so going asian men are desexualized right uh, and then they're like oh and then the other friend is an african-american lesbian and this is a good representation of that character and then there's one white guy and it's usually the reverse it's usually three white people and one minority or, or mm-hmm. you know someone different but the way it happened on the show was so the Kelvin's character is based on Alan. So that's that. So we were always going to have an Asian guy. Yeah. And it was going to be a, a, a you know a proxy for Alan. Right. And then uh, then we wanted uh, a female friend, and uh, we worked with Allison Jones, who's you know casting. Yeah, she's great. Legend, just incredible. Yeah. And she just started introducing us to all these people, and I did chemistry reads with everyone. That wanted to read for this part. Chemistry read mean just how it's like do you an audition vibe? where I'm right. I'm there and and Connected. we're really improvising a lot and, mm-hmm. and just kind of really trying to see if there's a chemistry there. Mm-hmm. And our favorite was Lena, uh, Lena Waithe, who who plays Denise. 
And we are like, this person's incredible. Never seen this person on TV. This this kind of energy and who she is. And we just changed the whole character uh, to be her. And so that's how that character came about. It wasn't like Alan and I sat down like, what if we got an African-American lesbian woman to mm-hmm. be my friend? Like, so, it, there was never that conversation. And then Eric is is a friend of mine in real life. So, and, and all these characters. And then Noelle, was, uh, who's um, my girlfriend's show, was another person we auditioned so many women i did so many auditions with people and improvised with all these women and she was a person i had the best chemistry with and seemed like the funniest and most natural performer and so we cast them all based on their talent mm-hmm. and i think the, the it reflects alan and i's reality when we hang out i mean there is an indian guy and an asian guy there you know and we do have black friends and eric is a friend so all these <laughs> characters are kind of based on the 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 performers and i think the reason it feels different is because it's just it's authentic to me and 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 my um right in my social circles it's not like you know if they made seinfeld now i don't think they should cast seinfeld any different than they did like that reflects a reality that's there right and i don't think they it's about oh we'll make one of jerry's friends asian now or something like no i i I don't think that's the answer right 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 i think what we did works because it's very authentic i think the answer would be if you're doing a show like Seinfeld now, if you do cast an Asian guy, maybe don't cast him only when you need a guy that's like yeah. working, you know, the long right. Yeah, we want to. We don't. You don't want to do quota casting. Yeah, I think that feels fake and, and phony. I guess some people. We've are, all seen those shows where you're like, I don't uh, think that black guy would hang out with these people. Yeah. I really think he's being forced into this friend group. In real life, this guy would not hang out with these three other people. Well, and what, those shows are on. Sure. <laughs> you know the shows. Sure. It's like, so it's it's kind of tough to find that middle ground where it feels authentic and doesn't feel like quota casting. And for us, it was very authentic because me and Alan are friends, and that those are those two guys. And then Lena was just our favorite person that auditioned, and we made that character her. And, and, and Eric I really Eric. am friends with yeah. her now, and, and it, it all feels real, and Eric is Eric. Well, I guess I, I guess uh, a lot of people are going to sort of project whatever they think is like. Well, this is intentional. It's trying. Yeah. I really didn't expect it to be this thing, but it's cool, and I'm glad that people are seeing it and being like, "Wow, this is a cool depiction of Asian Americans." Because it, you know, it, we were aware of the Asian American stuff a little bit. Like Alan had asked me when we were shooting, uh, he said something to me once. He was like, "How many times have you seen an Asian guy kiss someone?" And I was like, well, I mean, not in real life. He meant yeah. like on TV and film. Because in real life, you see <laughs> it all the time. In real life, you can't avoid it. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I was like, wow, you really don't see it. It, it, it. There really is this whole thing of desexualizing Asian men and Indian men on um, on television and film. And so to see them portrayed the way Kelvin portrays a character of Brian, where he's sexually capable, confident, good-looking guy, it, it is sadly an anomaly. And also, like, it's... There, there's an element to it that it is a uniquely American experience mm-hmm. that that you're sort of capturing, and I think that you know some people keep you know uh, they they'd rather generalize that ethnically than just see everybody as like well they're just you know people uh, American people who are who are living their lives. I I I someone wrote me on Twitter. They were like, it's cool to see a group of friends on TV that look like my group of friends, right? And I do think you see sometimes. On like network shows, you see these four people. You're like, all right. I mean, these are really attractive white people that are hanging out together. <laughs> I guess right. that's it, a thing. It's I, homogenized. It, yeah, and it, and I think what's strange is 
I think so much of a TV and film is the the kind of proxy for the everyman is a super good looking white guy. And the truth is not many people relate to that guy. Right. You not know, anymore. He's, he's he's not everybody. Yeah, I guess probably never. I mean, it was always a fantasy in the first place. You, you know, the whole idea of movies and movie stars. And Yeah, I guess it kind of started out with this thing of, oh, like, let's live vicariously through. Right. The myth. This whoever this guy right. is. Yeah. And then now it's kind of like people are like, all right. What's interesting to me, what I've learned doing from the show is there's so many stories to tell that we haven't we haven't told at all. Ever. They're just amazing stories about people that have just been so, just never been in the forefront of the stories we tell. And we're just slowly scratching the surface as more and more creators are coming from different backgrounds and ethnicities. Right. And, and, it, and to me, that's very exciting. Just and the idea of just like more interesting stories because out the, in the world. Because the cultural landscape is dramatically changing. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, to even get a sense of, of what, you know, the, the, the population looks like becomes tricky in terms of like what, what, you know, how many people really relate to this. But, but the weird thing is, is that there's no denying that it's changing and it's, and it's more inclusive and it's for the better, but still it seems that some te- like some mediums are just slow to get to it. Yeah. And, and you I seem think to be it, sort of on the forefront of some of that. It takes time to be able to do this stuff well too. I think Alan and I, you know, we had a lot of experience through Parks and Rec and, and other things we've done, so we were able to do this in a good way and make it feel right. And uh, I, I think if we'd done this show when we were younger, it wouldn't have been any good. I think it would have probably been a fine show, but it wouldn't have been what it is now. And, and I think over time, as more and more people like me and Alan go through uh, our careers and yeah. gain experience <clears throat> to, to make shows like Master of None or whatever... Um, hopefully we'll get more and more of these these kind of shows and stories and films and whatever. I just think it's impressive that you have friends. You know, like uh, I'm not <laughs> I'm not a guy like I have friends, but I don't spend time with a lot of people. So like somehow or another, I guess there are some people that you know go out in the world and they hang out with friends. I guess I never really led a normal life like that because I was a comic and I spent most of my life in fucking comedy clubs and I didn't you know I was not uh, you know working with other people or writing with other people. Mm-hmm. I had a you know a few guys that I'd see and be like hey hey. You know, we're friends because we're comics, but I don't I don't generally spend time with a lot of people. So maybe that's my uh, that's why I feel excluded from everything. <laughs> like when I'm watching anything and I'm like, people don't hang out and talk. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> but that's my own problem. But th- that that was a thing in the show where we, we made it so every episode, it's not the same four people show up all the time. We, yeah. we made it so oh whatever the story is, whatever that episode's about, let's bring in the other people as we need them. Because yeah. we were writing, we're like... That character wouldn't be here right now. But like, also, it seems like, you know, you, you, you as a person, like, uh, you know, in terms of, of being able to do the show and, and having the experience that, you know, you you seem to be consciously and, and with effort evolving as a human being around uh, uh, around women, around, you know, relationships. Or, like, you, you, you're sort of aware. Like, my, my girlfriend was very happy about the the, uh, the uh, episode that dealt with women's safety and that self-awareness of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, even those stories aren't really told comedically that often. It's hard to do. It's hard to do it and not come off preachy and to make it feel real. And you don't want it to seem like you're trying to, like, pat yourself on the back or anything like yeah. that. But um, as far as, like, evolving as a performer, the analogy I always used is I've always liked bands that put out albums that show a growth and, and right. change but kind of maintain an essence, be it something like the Beastie Boys or Radiohead or whatever. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's the goal is to, is to keep 
evolving as an artist and 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 getting better and doing different things. But it's and interesting. Yourself. It was it, it was it seems to me like I don't know how aware of it you are or, or what your consciousness is around it. But like I think early on in your career, you're a sort of observational comedian, mm-hmm. you know, who did you know sort of skewed stuff with a certain rhythm, and you know a lot of it was focused on you know uh, having a, a a kind of point of view around reality that was new. And then like as you became more a uh, a person with uh, success and I, I guess some some money and some uh you know awareness of your yourself out in the world and with women and stuff that you you really started to sort of delve into you know relationship material which is hard to do uh in a new way. Yeah, I think an advantage I had was I'm a little bit I'm younger than people realize sometimes, I think. And so... How old are you? I'm 32 now. But when I was doing that stuff, I was, you know, in my late 20s. And there were things that people weren't talking about because a lot of the comedians that were at the level I was doing theaters and things like that were older. So they were either married or divorced or whatever. Already jaded. They're already past that stage where they were young and kind of out. No hope. Dealing dealing with that stuff. (laughs) So it gave me an interesting... Opportunity well, to kind of talk about this stuff in a new way as a, as a comedian that, that was living at that it. level and 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 but you didn't there was never a point in time where like you know you were talking about your own experience through jokes about relationships where you were sort of like you know I wonder if this has been covered before. Well, I think with anything, it, it's really about your take on it right. and, and sure, whatever you're course. talking no, about. And absolutely. you can kind of tell if, if you can you can kind of go out to the clubs and hear yeah. what people are doing and hear kind of the common yeah, yeah, takes. Yeah, yeah. And you know if yours is different enough to where it's worth doing. If I, I think so. And I mean, also, that, that's how I felt. With all the stuff I did, I felt like I did it in a way where it differentiated its, itself from the more obvious. Right, because jobs. generationally, you know, primarily because of, of technology and a strange lack of you know, real engagement with people that the obstacles are different. You, you know what I mean? Like I didn't, you know, I, there was no texting mm-hmm. when I was, you know, date. I mean, I've, I've dealt with that in my adult life, but I'm still an old man, like going like, this is exciting. You just, <laughs> <laughs> but, but for your generation, which is, you know, you're 20 years younger than me, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just normal. It's, it's how you engage. You almost hardly, you, you, you like, there's a chance that you will never have seen or even talked to the person before in real life before you meet them it's crazy how these very once universal human experiences kind of die away for example just the idea of a guy nervously calling a woman on the phone right that's gone i mean that's there's a certain generation that has no idea or leaving a message even yeah now the version is like what do i send in this first text like that's not that scary that's much less scary than like hearing that ring and hearing someone go hello and yeah you missed out i mean that's a crazy moment i mean i had the tail end of that yeah um, uh, you missed out of the nervous first call. Hey, yeah, but that used to be going? that's something that everyone could relate to it to a certain age, and now it's gone. Yeah, I don't know where all the time goes. You know, like because you never feel like you have time, and all this stuff was supposed to make life more convenient for us, but it actually makes it more insane. Well, there's a good and a bad. You know, for, sure. For you know, I think there's some people that are like, oh, I can text and. Now I don't have to be as nervous, and right, also right. I can. It doesn't feel as forward, and now we kind of build a rapport on text, and things are better for me in that way. Is that is that thing in, in that one episode where you know the woman just goes on dates to get free food? Is that a real thing? That's a real thing. Someone told us uh, one of the I, one of the writers mentioned that there was some girl that worked in their office that would just go on OkCupid okay dates 
to have good free, food? Just, just, have, just use the guys for free food. Yeah, I think that's a thing some people do in, in cities like New York. They'll just go on these OkCupid dates and just use people for food. <laughs> and so what, what happens now? You got the book out and this is, you know, the show's going. Do you know if you're going to do more? Are you going to do more? Uh, they haven't officially said, but I... I Why I, not, right? I, I think they'd probably want to do more. I, if we did do more, if we did a season two, I would just want to take some time to to have some stuff happen to me and, and make sure that what we did was as, uh, as good as what is we did. Is there anything the I can do to help you? Want me to lock you in the garage for two days? <laughs> hey, that'd be an episode. That'd be a strange one, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and what about stand-up? Are you, like, are you in it? Are you taking a break? Are you writing new shit? What are you doing? Stand-up, I... I wrote about I had like about forty minutes that I did for the oddball tour over the summer. Right, right. Um, and I, I might go back into the clubs and try to just finish an hour and do a tour. But I kind of want to write some more scripts and stuff before I do a tour because sometimes I feel like I just go to stand up and I let it's easy. It's what we do. Writing go down and like write like what a though? Script writing like uh, a movie, like a movie or more episodes of the show or whatever. I don't. But know. is that the uh, is that sort of where the 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 momentum in your mind is that sort of the next plateau is to to sort of uh follow the uh you know to to break the mold of uh sort of what you talked about in that episode and and actually have a a nice big movie that stars indian leading men <laughs> and <laughs> you know well, I think I did that with Master of None. Even though it's not a movie, I I, I was thinking about that I, whether I'd want to do a movie, and I realized, well, Master of None, I get to do whatever I want. They're yeah, I get that. Very sure. open to every ideas we want to do. Um, I have me and Alan have so much control on the show. Creative freedom, and, and, yeah, yeah. And I don't know what what I would get out of doing a movie. And so many people watch the show. I mean, so many people got to see the show. No, Dude, I know movies are a chore, man. Movies you know, are tough. You got to get out there, and then you see the weekend box office numbers. It's a just different to thing. get it made. It's it, like you know, you think like, oh, well, anyone can make one. And we got the technology, but it's not easy, man. It seems like a struggle, and I feel like I have such a great situation with Netflix and the show. I, I. Uh, Obviously, there's part of me that wants to do that, and there are limited. I can't tell every story I want to tell through the show. Like, if I wanted to do something where I played a totally different character, that might be weird to do in the show. I mean, granted, we play around with a lot of stuff, but I, I think it, it might be hard. You to do could do things. like if you wanted to, though, if you really wanted to play with with length and and stretching out a narrative. You know, in the next season, you could do an hour first episode. Like, you sure, could... yeah. I mean, I I think Netflix is very creatively supportive of anything we want to do, but. Um, yeah, there is something cool about movies yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. just doing a cool movie. And yeah, making. Yeah. If I made like one really good movie, I'd be so thrilled. If I had like one really good one that I directed and wrote and acted in, I'd be thrilled. That would be many, awesome. How many did you direct, The Masters and None? Master of None, I did two of them. I did The Parents episode and The Nashville episode. No, and those were your real parents? Those were my real parents, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you had your brother and your parents. Very crazy, you know, to have. Is that such your a, only brother? As uh, my little uh, only uh, only sibling, my little brother. Uh, yeah, it's very, very surreal. I was thinking about it when we went to the. We had a premiere for the show in New York, and my whole family was there. I was like, wow, this is like probably the biggest thing I've done in my career. Probably the most well received thing I've done in my career. And my parents are in it, and my brother helped me write it. Pretty pretty cool to have my whole immediate family be such a big part of it. Not even a little part, a big part. It wasn't like my parents did like a little cameo. Yeah. They're, they're in a few episodes. My brother helped write on every episode. <laughs> uh, you know, even though all the episodes, most of them say written by Aziz and Alan, you know, they were sure. written in a room and everyone pitched ideas and jokes that's that the made it, it in the episode. And that, that's how those writer's rooms work. Yeah. Um, and, and to have my whole family be a part of something that ended up being such a big thing in my career is, is really special. Are they excited? 
yeah, I think they're they're thrilled. You know, I think you know my dad's getting all these emails from people that have seen the show, like <laughs> distant relatives, random Indian people that just live in North Carolina. They're <laughs> they, did, they got new friends now. <laughs> You're yeah. close by. Where do you guys go to eat? <laughs> well, thanks, Aziz. I think where are you headed now? I don't know. I think I you know I'm, I'm just running around. I might have a little bit of a breather. I might just go home for a little bit. All right, buddy. Good talking to you. Thanks for having me, Mark. <laughs> Aziz. It is a good show. Some good shit in it. It is kind of, um, it's kind of, it's sort of interesting. The idea of, you know, what makes, you know, what makes somebody an artist? You know, what makes somebody, it's like, I was talking before and even talking to Aziz. It's like the work that goes in that once you sort of refine what you are and what you do and, and the craft of what you do, then you know, the job and the work of of bringing that to whatever you're going to bring that to is really the fucking that's that's where that's where, you know, the the what is it? The tire meets the pavement, the wood meets the saw, the fist meets the face. What is it? That's where it happens, man. And, uh, you know, as I it's very hard you know, being a self-employed person to know when you're not when does work stop? It never stops. It's fucking nine at night and I'm recording this right now and I wrote all day and this morning I did an interview. It's crazy. And the only thing that's making me sane is uh, I learned how to make uh, this uh, this bread that, I, that I've, I've always been curious about. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how I take a break. I'm going to engage in the artistry of baking. It's not even a real bread. It's more of this dense brick. It's, uh, there's a place in New York called Angelica. It's a vegan place, but they make this sort of brick-like rice bread that I, I always thought was some sort of mystery. But it's weird with food. You just go online and you look up something and it's like, I wonder if I can make that. And you're like, holy shit, I can make this. So now I have an entire brick of this rice bread. It's literally a dense brick-like substance. And uh, I have no family. I have no, uh, no people. You know, Sarah, I give Sarah half of it, but uh, I'm still left with half a massive brick of rice bread. And uh, you know what I do with that? Shove it in my face. So uh, whatever health elements might have been uh, at the core of it, the idea of it are are lost because I've just consumed uh, the equivalent of 90 bowls of rice and uh, five bowls of oatmeal. Sounds good. A lot of carbs. I'm about to fall asleep. All right, now, I know a lot of you are going to be like, are you going to have uh, Robert and Flea back separately to not just, you know, to talk separately? Well, I, I think you'll be surprised at how much we were able to cover and also the interaction between these two guys who, you know, have been around L.A. for a long time talking about bass, talking about bands. It was a real fucking thrill to have Flea in here and to have Robert Trujillo in here and also to uh, to be part of uh, of, uh, of people seeing this movie, uh, Jaco. The film uh, is uh, is pretty amazing, and it's a documentary of a real uh, a real American genius. And as I said before, there's a premiere and a concert this Sunday, November 22nd, at the Ace in Los Angeles, and you can get tickets for that uh, and info on screenings. You can pre-order the Blu-ray and DVD at jockothefilm.com. So now let's talk to uh, Robert Trujillo and Flea. <laughs> Sonny had a Harry Potter party. And we, uh, I dressed up like Dumbledore. Oh, yeah. And my, my friend in my guest house dressed up like Voldemort. And we had owls, all really? this stuff. What? We had a bottle he, with the wands. I was up was all that, night. Was that your kid? 
Yeah, yeah, we had a, I had seven little girls sleep over my house last night. Oh my god, mayhem, pandemonium, no sleep, fucking insanity, no, no sleep. sleepy sleeps. But it must have been probably more fun than a night of blow. I mean. <laughs> Anything's more fun than a night of blow. <laughs> well, look, I, I I wanted to talk to both of you guys because did you did you guys know each other when you were kids? Um, we you know met what? like we were like young adults. Young adults. Like when did you meet? Because you both grew up in the area, well, right? It's hard to remember because it was a while ago. But I remember you in this very colorful Mercedes Benz with multicolored. Yeah. It looked like a like a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. And I just got off tour with suicidal tendencies, and we're driving from. I'm driving from the airport with yeah. whoever I was with, and I look to my right and I see Flea, and he was with some Rasta guy, some <laughs> dude with dreadlocks, and he's. No shirt. Yeah. He's picking his nose, yeah. you know, like picking a winner. <laughs> and that was a classic moment. I I, I didn't even want to say hi. We met hi before to that, though. No, we met before. We met at the Roxy. I, I know for Stephen Perkins. Yeah, with Stephen. Actually, uh, Infectious Grooves had played a show at the uh, Palace in Hollywood. Yeah, I remember that. And you were there. Yep. And, uh, and that was when I first started jamming with Stephen. And I mean, everybody was there. It was kind of a, a crazy scene. Who was the Rasta guy? Was it Clinton? Was yeah, it George Clinton? Yeah, Rasta guy back in the it might have been D.H. Peligro. Yeah. yeah. Oh, D.H. I, mean, him, yeah. I know yeah, D.H. Yeah, it might have been Dirty T. Yeah, I see him around. Yeah, yeah. The things. Me too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, well, now, do you guys, so you guys didn't ever play on the same bill when you were kids, you didn't, because you were both like kicking around. When did you start playing bass? I, I, I knew about Robert. From Suicidal you know, Tendencies. From Suicidal, and before that, I just knew Robert was a bass player around. To be reckoned like, with? Just a dude that played bass that could rock, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but I'd, but, you know, you grew up, you lived in Venice, right? Right. Like, they, used to call me the, they used to call me the Mexican casualty. <laughs> Why? <laughs> they'd say, Mexican casualty. I don't know. It was just, and then yeah, Zach, that, Zach Wilde used to call me the whiskey warlord because of this phase I went through with Crown and Ginger. Oh, yeah? And Crown Royal, yeah. What, you know, I don't yeah. know. You get these nicknames. Sure, but, man. Yeah. So who were the bands you guys, like, when you were coming up, like, early on, when you were living in Venice, and where were you living in? Up here? Yeah, well, I was born in Australia. I left Australia when I was four. I moved to New York. I left New York when I was 11 in 1972 and moved to Hollywood, 72. So that's when the Hollywood started. Yeah. Yeah, and your what? Your dad was a musician? He, my stepdad was a yeah. jazz musician, so I was brought up around jazz. And and that was the first um, thing that you, you sort of yeah, I wanted to be towards? I wanted to be a jazz trumpet player when I was a kid. Did and you, that was my first thing. And then in high school, the bass just came up in rock bands, and I s stood a much better chance of getting laid oh yeah so it was yeah. about pussy it was all about pussy <laughs> <laughs> for you too for me pussy yeah well yeah i guess at a certain point it was you know i think uh that's I something to, that i talked to a lot of performers where it's like that was it well how are you gonna do it you know you think about it you think about back in the day yeah and, uh, and it's all about all of that i mean um but what Some of my my fondest memories playing music even up to till today yeah. were playing backyard parties in Venice, you know? Yeah. And, and we played everything from from like Van Halen to Jimi Hendrix to Ozzy, who I eventually started to, to work with over the years, which was kind of surreal. But um, we even played like La Via Strangiato by Rush. And... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, we were always trying to go for the challenge. And, you guys um, rock La Via Strangiata? Yeah, we did in YYZ. <laughs> I don't know how good we played it, but we tried. And But before that, growing up, I actually, uh, my parents were into a lot of different styles of music. So I had a lot of Motown and James Brown in my life. 
and uh, and uh, as well as my you know like Sabicas because my dad was a flamenco guitar player. He was. So that's how. Yeah, I mean by hobby, but that's why I remember seeing that fingering style, yeah. and that's kind of how I started playing. It was I didn't play with a pick initially. It was all sort of finger is that where you got that chord thing going probably you know yeah, yeah. Just, you know when you're young you know super young like i mean i was a baby and that's the first instrument i saw being played was a flam- was a uh you know a, a, a nylon flamenco string. guitar flamenco yeah and um and then over the years i started to discover other styles of music but funk like 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 funk music like uh the ohio players the first concert I ever went to was the Isley Brothers in like 1975 or something. Oh, or really? 76. Oh, Ohio Players, that was fire. Right. Dun, dun, and roller dun, coaster. Dun. Yeah, no, roller coaster. Roller coaster. But, but, uh, and all baby production. But the Isley <laughs> Brothers were like bringing riffs. You yeah, know? yeah. They were bringing like the metal to the funk. So, you know, that's when I discovered bass and here I, here I am. Patty Smith told me that she was at her high school prom in in Chicago two bands were playing at a high school prom like one in a real popular room and she went in there and all the kids were in there yeah and it was I don't know some lame top 40 band and she went to the other room and no one was in there and the Isley Brothers were in there playing with Hendrix on guitar what, yeah, what? fucking Jimi Hendrix on guitar at her high school Shit. prom with the Isley Brothers uh, that's and, right um, he was with him for like a couple of years right yeah you know a little phase yeah, before yeah. he before he met uh, what's his name from the animals Eric Burden so like when you were starting out just you were playing jazz when you were a kid uh, yeah I wanted, you know I was like getting ready to play jazz I was playing trumpet and I was very into it and romancing it and just into bebop the, and the whole life bebop I, the whole you know Charlie Parker Dizzy Gillespie I met Dizzy Gillespie when I was a kid I was around jazz all the time Art just, Pepper yeah Art Pepper was he around did your dad know those guys no like, no but but he knew he played with Dizzy a little bit he played yeah. with Philly Joe Jones he, he played with some guys but he never really made it happen his people skills weren't so good <laughs> Yeah. You know, and heroin is never good for stuff. Oh, you know? So he was one of those guys that got the heroin, but not so much. The- <laughs> no, he's a great player. Yeah. I don't. I don't mean to is marginalize. No, unfortunately, mm-hmm. he died a few years ago. But he 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 got strung out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he got real strung out, and he got straight. You know, yeah. he got on the program, and got straight and stuff. But um, but I grew up loving jazz. But just talking about like Robert and I coming up as bass players in L.A., I was thinking when I was driving up here, I was thinking like one of the great feel-good stories in the history of rock is when Robert Trujillo joins Metallica. Yeah. Like, we all saw the movie and we saw that moment and I remember seeing that and it was like so heartwarming and beautiful, you know, and you join Metallica and it's like so great. Yeah. But, but for me and for other people that I know who like came up in the club scene in LA playing, yeah. it was like a victory for all of us. <laughs> it was like, you know, for all the LA homies, it was like Robert Trujillo is in fucking Metallica. <laughs> and this is cool. Like it was just like not only was it a match made in heaven, but it was just awesome. Yeah. Like yeah, it was just you. such a great, beautiful yeah. thing. So anyway, was that a big day for you? It was a it was a very surreal day for me. Yeah. And uh it was um, but when you get a gig like that, you know, uh, it, it's so strange, really strange is the word because I remember going up there. I was late. I was always late back then. For the auditions? This would have been in 2003. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a quick story about yeah. the audition. Right. Let's go to the audition. Okay. Basically, it was a two-day audition. The first day of the audition, um, I was kind of just there to be a fly on the wall. Right. Um, Bob Rock's there. The bass had already been recorded. Bob Rock recorded the bass. So I'm just hanging around. And and 
Lars and James and Kirk kind of live in this bubble. Yeah. You know, it's like, and, you know, they, they, they were just like, yeah, you know, make yourself at home, you know, yeah. just hang out. And yeah. I'm just kind of hanging out in this big complex. Is it up in the Bay Area? Yeah, yeah. Up, up, you know, up north. And I, I'm kind of lost because no one's really completely <laughs> communicating with me and I'm just there. Yeah. And, okay, so I'm in, you know, come on in the control room and I'm just there. They're cutting tracks and that's it, hanging around. 11 o'clock rolls around at night and Lars, we're in the parking lot where the last one's leaving and Lars says, hey, man. Let's go get a drink. Let's go get let's yeah. go, you know, let's go get a nightcap. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, and um, we go to the first bar, have a couple cocktails. We go to the second bar, have a few more. Go to the third bar. Then we end up at his house for more cocktails. By this time, it's five in the morning. Yeah, you know, I I can't even drive to wherever I'm staying, <laughs> yeah. and it's just it's impossible. <laughs> and he even says, "Here's crash out my guest room." Right. So at nine in the morning, four hours later, he's yeah. on the treadmill. This right. guy. And he, it's like he doesn't know me anymore. You know, he's already sobered up and he's right, on a treadmill. Right, yeah. And I'm got this, I've got this crazy headache. Yeah. And then he's like, all right, let's go. Let's go to the studio. And I'm driving behind him, you know, couldn't even keep my eyes open. Yeah. I get to the studio and this is when they were going through this sort of therapy. Thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy called Phil Toll. Right. Who was a- um, That's in the movie. Yeah. He yeah, was yeah. like a, he was a- what do they call it? Like kind of a life coach, uh-huh. kind of a, yeah, yeah. a motivator, which was at the time, I guess, good for the band, but I wasn't used to that. Yeah, I was yeah. just, and here I am with a pounding headache. James has just gone through this whole thing where, he, of course, he's sober. And right. the last person he wants to see anywhere near his band is a drunk Mexican, <laughs> you know? And so what happened? Me, that would be me. Yeah, that's a casualty. <laughs> that's a casualty was in full effect. Yeah. So- I'm sitting at the table and I'm like, got the the worst headache, completely hungover, and and I'm thinking Lars did this to me because he was you know checking me out to yeah. see if I could hang the with test. him. It was the test. I it had to have been. Yeah. He's a Viking, really. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I came up with the eye because I go into the bathroom, I was throwing water on my face, slapping it, going, "Oh man, you got to hang in there, hang in there," because I really wanted to say, "I can't do this right now, guys. Sure, yeah. I don't feel good. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, I really can't do this." Um, I, I I stuck it out. I knew the tech, the the bass tech from back when Suicidal Tendencies was touring with Metallica, which would have been in 1993 on the Black Album. So he knew those guys knew you. They knew me from back then. Right. Yeah. And here we are 10 years later. And so Zach Harmon, who is now still my bass tech, I, I you know, I didn't I didn't have a bass. So, mm-hmm. oh, well, let's go grab a bass. Let's choose the amp setup. So I kind of used that as my way yeah. to get out of this hangover situation. And the when I watch some kind of monster, I see myself wearing this brown Armani t-shirt yeah which i would never own in my life (laughs) you know why because it's not mine it's lars's yeah (laughs) you know his 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 wife at the time skylar gave me that shirt because the one i'd been wearing which was probably pretty funky yeah was not it was not happening so anyway that's a you know i'm sure he was sizing me up and and how'd you how'd you perform we played battery and i i think it helped me not be nervous yeah and that's what you see in the film and everybody seems to think it was uh pretty slamming yeah but uh, other than that i was brain dead i couldn't co- <laughs> as long, if i could play i was fine but in communicating with hetfield because he would come over to me and ask me questions and i would come up with really stupid answers because literally i was not all yeah, there you're fucked up i was man so fully so. like what in in a, in a relative way you know when you were pretty young when you met anthony right yeah we were 15 
So what? Where was the moment where you where you guys where you knew you had a fucking band? Well, we were inseparable from when we were fifteen. Yeah. Literally, yeah. I mean, we did everything together. Bad stuff. We were bad kids. Yeah, yeah. We, we were robbing houses. <laughs> oh and yeah, hustling drugs and yeah. stealing and just bad. I Not mean, playing I, music. I was playing music. He had no interest in playing music. Right. Yeah, I was playing in bands and. You know, I started playing in a rock. I, I was getting ready. I know I was a couple of years away from playing in a rock band, but I was playing trumpet, and I was dead set on being a musician. And then I joined a band with some high school buddies, and we were all friends. And Anthony wanted to be an actor, but he would introduce us. Yeah, he had this whole like spiel, this real slick spiel. <laughs> you know, their fathers call him crazy, the girls call him all the time, but I call him like I see him, and I call him Anthem, and we come out and start rocking our like, jams. <laughs> what kind of music was that? Kind of like Prague, La Via Strangiata kind of rock, <laughs> nice. you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, we had moments yeah but and then anthony went to go see grandmaster flash in the furious five in 1982 yeah and just or or, or no yeah 82 end of 82 and freaked out like we had we knew hip-hop a little bit but right. we didn't really know right they, they had their first hit the message out yeah saw grandmaster flash and he was like i want to rap because he didn't ever consider that he could sing right but i want to rap and i was like well you know i live for the funk i mean i'm you know <laughs> yeah i play funk all day long right and so i just like cooked up some funk grooves and he started rapping on him and literally we never had a rehearsal our first gig we just kind of talked about it in my living room with Jack Irons and Hello Slovak and I was like you go you know yeah, yeah. and we just went out and did it and next time we played like you know two weeks later it was lines around the block and it just never stopped I remember seeing them at the music machine in uh, uh in I guess it would be like sort of Santa Monica West LA yeah over on Pico and uh, it was a great show, small club. And I remember Anthony, he was he had a, a flu or something, but he was still <laughs> kicking ass and he was <laughs> throwing loogies everywhere, spitting them out. Yeah. They were green and ugly. But yeah. anyway, they sounded great. And uh, um, and that's because back then with Suicidal Tendencies, Rocky, Rocky George, yeah. who got me in the band, that's who I went to high school with, he was talking about this amazing bass player called flea yeah and um i always like bass players with one name yeah like jocko <laughs> yeah, yeah soccer yeah. players you yeah. know yeah exactly you know it's but, sort of this unique breed of characters but for you guys but you for like bass players you guys are like up front you know full-on performers like you know like historically the bass player is just a dude hanging out in the back right but at some point you guys you know well you took I front think, seat well, yeah i think robert and i are kind of from that generation of bass players that first kind of started i mean not for the fusion guys or the jazz guys yeah. where they were already like you know virtuosos yeah but in terms of in like the rock world the youth culture rock music for sure what too was, oh what for sure yeah. i had him in oh, here yeah. he's got his whole he's got his own language he's that got guy. everything <laughs> <laughs> he's got it all he's a spiritual master oh, yeah. he is right oh yeah so he was a little before you remember perkins telling me he's showing up on tour when he toured with when he's playing in point of papyrus uh-huh. he showed up on tour with his bass no suitcase toothbrush in his flannel pocket and that was it a shirt pair of pants a bass a toothbrush i'm ready to go and that's For like it. a six-month tour right, you know. right. Did straight, he, uh, straight from san pedro man yeah. did you were you guys contemporaries or was he a little before contemporaries but yeah. another quick rot so i was on yeah. a tour with rot once and he had diarrhea really bad was that with the, the sickness he had with that thing he had some diarrhea i don't oh, know yeah, he, got diarrhea. Yeah. he got diarrhea he got sick yeah and he <laughs> went out on stage and just tied his pants shut at the bottom <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> i think he told me about that <laughs> tied him shut <laughs> just went out there and <laughs> rocked oh man filled those babies up like some mc hammer pants that's nice well, when, when was the trick for you fully where where you know you 
you sort of defined your style. Was it that moment when you when Kiedis wanted to to rap and you you just got on board with that funk thing? Or yeah, kinda. And before that, like I, you know, I joined this band called Fear. Yeah, and, and they were a real with uh, what's his what's his with Leaving yeah, and yeah, Spitsticks yeah. and Philo Kramer. Were you in the original crew? No, no, they they kicked their bass player out yeah. for a drug problem, and so I joined and. Um, they, it was so intense and hard and I really, and I got into the, I, I really started getting into punk rock, which was a new thing for me. Like who? Which guys? You know, all the LA bands. I like Germs, Fear, X, The Weirdos, The Screamers, yeah. Bags. Yeah. You know, I like the LA bands. Yeah. And then it expanded. Right. But I liked that. It was like, you know, they're the, the contemporaries. Yeah. The guys on the scene that I looked up to. And, um... And I just started really feeling that intensity, the intensity, yeah. the immediacy. There was something about it that, that struck a chord in me in a really intense way. And because I grew up loving funk, and that, that was just really my thing, was funk, um, I started applying that to funk. And I started like playing funk really aggressively. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, when I started, when see bass players play, there's this guy in my high school, like I would see the black guys play bass and they all slapped. Yeah. And so I was like, whoa, that's where it's at. And so I started learning to slap. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was doing that. And then punk rock came. And then it was just, you know, it was just like, <laughs> I just started being really like violent and aggressive about it. With and, the slapping. Yeah. And yeah. found it, you know, and found my own style. And that was, you know, like 81, 82. So was that, so, and, and that was, before you recorded anything really yeah, yeah yeah and now with with the suicidal tendencies that was straight up like hard like punk rock right. and roll well when i first uh back in uh i guess it would have been 83 yeah um 84 i went to a jazz school called dick grove school of music yeah in studio city and i was there for a year um hanging with all these jazz cats that were some of them were a little older than me it was funny because we would go to MI as a tribe and our best guitar players would duel against their best guitar players, but they had all these kind of hip, you know, younger teachers and um, and our guys were a little older. Our guys were kind of like, like my my main teacher at the time was a guy called Max Bennett, who yeah. was actually the bass player with Joni Mitchell. He played on some of those albums that Jocko played on. Oh, really? And he was an awesome bass player, but he was kind of wild and crazy. He played in a band called the LA Express, and he had a, a, a bass strap that was leather, and it had all these couples in, in sexual positions, like <laughs> right, 69 right. position sure. and all that kind of stuff. With That's, the horoscope or just- All, a, all that stuff, right, man. Right. The full sexual yeah, kind yeah. Of guitar strap. So yeah, he was kind of wild like that. And then he lasted about half the year, and the, the guy that took over from him was a guy called Joel DeBartolo, who was the bass player for uh, Johnny Carson's show, Doc Severinsen Band. Sure. Yeah. And he was a wonderful teacher. So I went to jazz school, and then the minute I got out, it's like I never played jazz again. And a couple years after that, I ended up joining Suicidal Tendencies. So I was playing really high, like yeah. my bass was all up by my chin, like level 42. Like, like not that. cool? It was not cool. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. And then when I played my first show in Germany with Suicidal Tendencies opening for Anthrax, it was like this mosh pit that I'd never express. I mean, I loved suicidal. I used to wear the cap and dig the music, but to be on stage and play that music in Europe, especially Germany, yeah. was so intense that, um, I mean, I was laughing because I was so happy. And um, <laughs> gradually, obviously, the bass came down lower, mm -hmm. lower, and lower, and lower. <laughs> but that was sort of my initiation. And um, and then, of course, I discovered bands like Slayer and, and uh, you know, um, of course, Metallica. But, the slapping thing for me, I was always doing that. And uh, just like Flea said, I applied it to my style, which was, you know, again, aggressive, 
like thinking like like more percussive you know right. just being progressive and bringing bringing uh i always th- thought of it as a punching bag right like the heavy bag so it was a different timing too right because like you know fleas like pop and funk and you're just you know integrating it into like pounding rock yeah and well into the you know to whatever thrash or yeah, whatever yeah. you want to call it but again you know I think Flea and I are, are, are pretty experimental in what we like to do, and we like so many different styles of music. There's really no rules, you know? Um, but again, with, with, the, with that style of bass, you know, I always wanted to treat it like, you know, like you're, you're, you're in the, the, the Amazon jungle, and you just, oh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. You know. Well, what's the relationship with, like, because the rhythm section is like, you got to hold the whole shit together. I mean, it's really on you. Right and the drummer. Yeah, I mean it's you know I I am sure I Robert agrees with me that playing with a great drummer that really has pocket and groove and you can just like live inside that beat and get inside his kick drum and stuff is just a really uplifting feeling because it's you just know? you two in a way, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's well, it's everybody, but yeah. when you can really get like intimate with a drummer playing like that, it's such a great awesome feeling and i've been so fortunate to play with a number of incredible drummers in my life and it's just always well that's that's what's wild about you and yeah you've been in a lot of bands and you know you've been brought into a lot of bands and you've had to hold one band together for like decades now. yeah 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 <laughs> we're, we're in our 34th year i think it's wow. crazy man it's cool with a thunk right yeah do you know how many drummers and guitar players you've gone through um guitar <laughs> players i think i think seven Really? Yeah, and drummers, not that we've had the same drummer since 80, 88 or 89. So just like three But we had drummers. like three before that. Right, right. Four drummers, I think. And the guy, the guy now, he's like the solid guy. He's been yeah, there forever. Yeah, 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 he's solid. And you've had John Frusciante twice? Twice, yeah. And now we have Josh Klinghoffer. Yeah? yeah? yeah. And it, what it, it's, it's weird because who was that one dude? Who played on um, Up With Mofo uh, Hello Slovak. Right, so he yeah, yeah he passed away. He passed away, yeah. Because like I that was the first Chili Peppers album I heard, and I was mm. like, you know, this guy is like he's like doing something like Hendrixy. He definitely yeah. Well, he was he, he well we all loved Hendrix growing up. That was for us like in my group of guys that yeah. was our god. Oh, you yeah. Know? But, you too. Oh yeah. Yeah. But um, but when we really got into the Gang of Four when oh, they yeah, came yeah. out and like Echo and the Bunnymen and that English post punk sound. Yeah. And so. Right, right, Halal really like started getting really into Andy Gill and and Will Sargent from Echo and the Bunnymen and and fun, and so getting into that kind of like yeah that kind of aesthetic like angular weird effects and colors like synth kind of sounds yeah 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 and um a, you know and so you know he had a unique sound it's cool and when when you when you started playing with like making the shift from suicidal tendencies to like you know playing with somebody like Ozzy you know what how do you how do you integrate you know the songs already. Right. But how do you find, are there moments within songs, like when you're playing with Ozzy, where he's like, uh, he gives you some freedom and, you know, you can kind of find your own space with yeah, him? Yeah, there was actually, a, a, Ozzy would like to take a long break in the middle of the show, and it was during a song <laughs> called Suicide Solution. So yeah. at the time, I, I had the good fortune of playing with not only Zach Wilde right. for a few years, but also a guitar, wonderful guitar player by the name of Joe Holmes. And with Joe, we had created this solo section in the middle of a uh, suicide solution where the bass actually went into kind of a low range percussive groove and he would just rip, you know, Hendrix style uh, yeah. solo over it. And then we, that carried on to uh, touring with Zach as well. But it was a dream for me because, you know, growing up playing in backyard party bands and we're playing, 
you know, like um, songs like, of course, Crazy Train and mm-hmm. uh, um, even obscure songs like S.A.T.O. and uh, Believer. Believer was always one of my favorite songs, Over the Mountain. And then to to join Nazi's band and be on stage playing Sweet Leaf or Iron Man, <laughs> right. that's where the crab walk kind of came to be because <laughs> right. I was testing him. Um, he got in front of me, got in my face, yeah. and I started doing this sumo wrestler kind of move, <laughs> and he did it with me. Yeah. So we were feeding off each other. That would have been the second show, and I remember it was Las Vegas, and it was super tight and great. So it was just a surreal moment for me to be playing with my hero. That's one of the things I think that Flea can also sort of vouch for. As we've grown as musicians, you know, you're meeting your heroes. Like recently there was a show at the Hollywood Bowl celebrating Jaco Pastorius, and I got to meet Herbie Hancock for the first time. And I had met Wayne Shorter when we interviewed him. But, yeah. you know, just seeing those guys interact and in, in meeting Peter Erskine, well, actually being able to play with Peter a little bit. It just, you know, Booker T and all these oh, guys. He's a, he's a great guy. You know, it, it, it was really a moment for me. And then meeting even people like Jimmy Page. and You never um, met him before? I, I had met him in recent years yeah. with Metallica, and then uh, Lemmy, Lemmy's become a really good friend of mine. In fact, last night I, I uh, presented a Lifetime Achievement Award to him for Bass Player Magazine, and we. How's become, he doing? He he he's he's doing okay. He's going on tour tomorrow oh, today, boy. actually, and that worries me because I yeah. think he should be resting. But Lemmy doesn't want to rest, man. He wants to play rock and roll. I had him in here. He was pretty pretty wiped out. Yeah, he's, he's got the cane. He's a soldier. He's yeah, a he soldier. sure is a soldier. I, I tell you, an interesting thing that happened a few months. Well, it would have been about a year ago. I had played a, a special show celebrating Keith Moon and John Antwistle at the House of Blues, and I invited Joni Mitchell. I didn't think she was going to show up, but Lemmy was there because he was receiving yet another award. And um, he and I are talking. He's to the left of me, and he's smoking. Like a, like a chimney, yeah. And all of a sudden, I see Joni walk in. I'm like, oh my, you know, yeah. oh my God, she, Joni she and Lemmy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She sits to the right of me, and I got Lemmy to the left of me. Yeah. They're both chain smoking, <laughs> and I'm like, this is the most beautiful smoke I've ever inhaled in my life. <laughs> Lemmy smoke and Joni Mitchell smoke, and and she looks over. Lemmy doesn't really say anything, and she looks over, and, and he looks over, and I say, oh, okay, well, um, Lemmy, this is my good friend Joni Mitchell, Joni. This is this is you know this is Lemmy and she look, looks over at him, big old drag of the cigarette and goes, hello 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 uh, Lenny like that <laughs> yeah 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 and she then know Lemmy was yeah and then Lemmy looks over at her he takes a big drag of the cigarette he's like Joni what fucking chords were you playing on Court and Spark I could never figure that out you know. <laughs> Or with his voice, Joni, what yeah, four yeah. chords were you playing? And she starts to tell him. She goes, well, Lenny, I, yeah. you know, yeah. I do open core tuning, you know, and that's how I write my songs. And they had this conversation. I was just sitting in the middle of this, like, happier than a pig and shit. It's like two originals that are still true to their music. Yeah. I hearts. Right. Always. So well, that's a, well, that's a, like that's a, a good way to start in talking about the movie Jocko, the documentary, which I saw. I think I'm pretty close to this cut, right? That well, that screening, um, pretty close to it. There's been a, a, obviously all the technical stuff has been completely you know dialed in, and uh, meaning sound design and and there's some other edits that we had done. Uh, when you saw it, there was no intro credits or closing right. credits, and it's been a long haul. I mean, we're going six years into this, and I, in fact. 
Flea's a trooper because I had to. We had to interview him twice. We had to, we interviewed him the first year, and the sound wasn't good because the team that I had at the time didn't have their their shit together. So we had bad sound, and he was wearing a Lakers T-shirt, which is beautiful to celebrate the Lakers, but it's not good when you're trying to to finance something <laughs> like this. Yeah, and and so we had to come back a year later. And he was like, no problem. I mean, three hours on the first one and then another three hours and he was there for me. So, Well, well that's out of uh, yeah. friendship for you and I imagine respect for Jocko because Absolutely. like, well, Jocko is one of these guys. And I, the, what I want to ask you in terms of like your heroes, like I, like uh, Bootsy Collins, I imagine for you had a big impact, did he? For sure. Oh, and yeah. and for you, like when you talk about somebody like Lemmy, what, what is what what is Lemmy's, like what makes Lemmy special as a bass player? Well, Lemmy's special because, well, I love the, his usage of chords. Yeah. And I love his sound. And, um, you know, the fact that he's really an outlaw, you know, of rock and roll. And uh, he's got that swagger. Yeah. He's like Clint Eastwood. Yeah, you know? yeah And in a lot of ways, Jocko was the same way. You yeah. Know? Jocko was a daredevil, too. And he he was true to what he was doing. Um, though they come from, I know I like to say, refer to it as styles, but, right. but the edge in the attitude is the same. And, and I love that. Well, yeah. I'd always heard about, like I'd heard about Jocko, like when I was younger and I was not a jazz head. And it's interesting before, for a guy that, you know, on the edge and that brilliant and that possessed by, by musical brilliance, like that music, I didn't listen to Weather Report when I was a kid. There was no way I was going to hear it, and I never knew who he was, but I'd always heard he was this crazy fucker that was a genius, and it didn't end well. So when I saw the documentary, which is powerful and moving, and you, you got the, the support of his family, so you were able to get the real story and the whole story and the arc of what he was involved in and what made him so amazing, it's, it's fucking heartbreaking, the, the cost of talent and, and sort of mental illness that comes with genius sometimes. Well, well that's what... We we that's what I wanted to 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 share with the world. Number one, who my biggest influence was as a bass player, and also um, just the you know again the amazing story, and to celebrate that music in that time. And I've, I had so many so many young people come up to me today and say, "Hey, you know, I just want you to know, I'm now a fan of Jaco Pastorius and Weather Report and Joni Mitchell." And you know, there's a movement with vinyl right now. Yeah, I'm with, in it with record store. Spending a lot of money. I never yeah, left it. yeah. I mean, I never <laughs> left it either. And but the fact that now people are reconnecting with music from from that time period and even before is really special. And um, Jocko was really diverse. I mean, he loved all styles of music, you know, yeah. and he was super, super funky. So um, people are connecting with that now, and that's what this film's all about. It's not just a life story, but it's also, you know, a, a story about the time and music. And also, like you said, you know, um, mental... You know, when I see uh, homeless people now, I'm not sitting there judging them, you know, because right. I know there's more to it than yeah. that. Well, yeah, the fact that he ended up homeless after playing with Joni and after like well into his career, he, he lost it a little bit. Right. And it's like it's it's totally devastating. But like he's also remains this kind of romantic figure, you know, in, in his struggles with mental illness and also just his persistence. Absolutely. Um, again, I, I use the word daredevil. You know, uh, Wayne Shorter in the film calls him a superhero. And uh, and I think that's fitting. When did you first hear Jaco? You know, those weather report records. Yeah. The, yeah, Mr. Gone and Heavy Weather and stuff. And, and you were I able to identify like album. through the rest of the sound, like that guy's like... Yeah, well, I mean, it was a shockingly bizarre 
bold new sound that I'd never heard before. Yeah. I mean, it's the sound of the fretless bass with the chorus pedal on it. It was just insane, man. Yeah, yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd never heard anything like it. And, you know, as much as it was like mind-blowingly this like psychedelic virtuoso beauty that was just, you know, and it was such a warm sound that really envelops you. But, you know, like like you said, you know, I, I part of the movie, of course, to support Robert's endeavor, yeah. but just to, you know, anything to shine light on a guy that, that gave gave us so much. And because he was not a pop star, right. is relatively obscure to the general public. Right. Because people, you know, they like pop music. And we both but, saw him play where? around the same time. I, I, uh, Flea and I both, I, and we weren't there together, but I know you saw him at the Hollywood yeah, Bowl. Yeah. I saw him at the Hollywood Bowl with Weather Report, but I also saw him in 1979 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. And what I saw in 1979 just changed my life on so many levels. I saw a very diverse crowd. I saw... Punkers, metalheads, jazzers. I saw skateboarders and surfers because Santa Monica Civic is one block from the beach. And then I also saw a guy that reminded me of the tribe that I used to see at Venice Beach skating and surfing. Yeah. And so I, always, I thought he was really cool. And what I've learned in the film, I mean, that guy really loved the beach. I mean, yeah. ha- half the film, he's in shorts, he's got no shirt, and he's, you know, body surfing or playing frisbee. You yeah, know? yeah. So I just thought, this guy is super, super rad. He's so cool. And and then, you know, just taking command of the stage, I saw him, he, he put his bass down on one side of the stage, he took a running start, and he slid into his bass like it was sliding into home plate. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and that was just really cool, you know. So that night changed my life, and then I saw him three times after that. Did you did, meet him doing backflips and shit? Oh yeah, all that stuff. He did backflips. Yeah, oh yeah, he would do a backflip on stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he was incredible. That's what he do. But also, <laughs> it's like the story. Like for me, yeah, it's like it's Jocko's story, and you know it a lot better than me, Robert. I know it fairly well, you know. But it's really like this archetypal story of like you're talking about like this brilliance like how much is to be that brilliant how much mental illness has to accompany you to have that sort of discipline to focus on one thing to the exclusion of everything else but as well it's like i feel like it's like this archetypal man thing to like go out and slay dragons you know what i mean it's like you leave your family and you go out in the world and you're gonna fuck shit up and you're gonna win your beat your demons your personal demons or exterior demons depending how you grew up what they are but we all have them right to some extent in some way and you arm yourself with whatever weapons you can which in jocko's case was this base you know that he creates this beautiful weapon this beautiful fucking thing that's capable of like you know just really touching people's hearts and blowing people's minds but ultimately he can't slay that dragon and he loses yeah because because the mental illness and the drugs overcome him and he ends up you know becoming too self-destructive and dying and it's so like the story of mankind you know even though sometimes people win but it's 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 you know it's like you ever read beowulf yeah 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 you know what i mean it's like that kind of shit it's like this age old since the beginning of time we all have to have these serious battles that we have to fight and we have to do it yeah it's either that or just be nothing like right disappear. you know what i mean yeah. disappear and become you know an empty person and also there's but, that feeling like i imagine you feel it and you, both of you guys like when you are an artist you know you have your life you have your demons you have the troubles that exist in the real world but when you get up on stage 
it's different. It, the whole world is different. Right, but maybe like the bigger the battle, the more intense you have to be, and that's why someone like Jocko is so great. And didn't he invent you know the I mean? fretless electric bass, kind of? Well, I, actually, you know, James Jamerson might have been the one who, uh, at least for electric bass, yeah. you know, um, that's debatable. It's like people were, you know, with, with Tony Alva back in the day um, as a skater, you know, did he do the first air, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people, you know, in... Uh, in like San Bernardino, that probably said, I did the first air, <laughs> fuck that shit, yeah. man, you know. Um, but Jocko made the fretless bass sing like like it hadn't happened before. I mean, he gave it a voice, a melodic voice, um, that was just so powerful and dynamic. And he was such a great collaborator with that instrument. Whether he was collaborating with Joni Mitchell or collaborating with Ian Hunter, you know, um, on the song All American Alien Boy, he, he was very young at that time. And the solo on that on that song might be one of the greatest rock bass solos, you know, uh, ever. And not a lot of people have heard it. So, you know, he was, again, a great collaborator with a with a very unique sound and powerful sound that could be so beautiful but also so angry and, and yeah and in just abrasive in a beautiful kind of way uh, you and, know and so like instantly identifiable i don't think yeah. i can't think of another musician ever really in the history of music with a more instantly identifiable sound a bass player like just an instrument in the band like the second you hear it it's him yeah yeah and, and there's no question it's like Oh, could that be some studio guy? Maybe he was aping him? Yeah. No, because no one could ever do it. And a million guys tried. They and did. No, and no one could come, not yeah. even close. Like it's so mildly transcendent above everything else. No one could come close. I was listening this morning. I listened to Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. Right. It's like, give me a fucking break <laughs> of the power and the beauty of it. Like, 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 like you feel like in the beauty, you feel the vulnerability and the anger too, like you said, right. you know, yeah. and the violence. But it's just like liquid love, man. Fuck. It's, it's like magic. Like, I mean, because like, it's weird because somebody can be an amazing virtuoso but not have that fucking depth or feel. Yeah. So do you remember like, um, like for you, Flea, Robert was talking about, you know, jazz and everything else. But when you were coming up, who was the bass player that you identified as like the guy that was like, I'm going that way? When I started playing bass? Yeah. Man, I don't know. I, I I was so into trumpet players, you know. But the first, I just liked bass lines and stuff. I mean, Jocko was the first guy where it's like, this is the greatest electric bass player on earth. There's no question. This is the greatest guy. Yeah. But there are just guys, I like the way certain guys sound in certain bands that aren't really the greatest guys. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I love I love Billy Cox. I yeah, mean, yeah. Like, on, I really love Billy Cox is playing in the band of Gypsies. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And it's just really simple hypnotic bass, but yeah, it yeah. touches me, you know. Right, right. And, you know, Paul McCartney's bass playing is stellar and, like, unbelievable. Phil Lesh, where does Phil Lesh stand in the uh, Pantheon? Phil Lesh is great. I mean, you know, he's <laughs> he's kind of created his own thing, you know, and obviously there's a lot of ja jam bands out there that, yeah. you know, are, are pulling something from him. And so. Whistle? And Whistle, yeah, he's he's awesome. Geezer Butler from Sabbath. Yeah, is yeah, just yeah. So bad. And he wrote most of those fucking songs. Right? Well, yeah, the lyrics. Geez, geezer's the guy. Yeah. Who wrote most of yours? Do you write with Anthony? Um, we all write together communally. And usually the you know the songs always start with either, I mean, not always, but 90% of the time start with either something I came up with or the guitar player came up with. And in the movie, you've got Geddy Lee, you got Sting, you got, who are some of the other Belly's players? What, uh, 
You've got uh, Jerry Jamat. Jerry Jamat was Jocko's favorite electric bass player. Um, he who, was incredible, man. Yeah, he's at amazing. Show, at your show. Yeah. It, dude. And, and he's another guy that's been, had demons following around for many, many years. But he played on B.B. King, The Thrill Is Gone. He played with Aretha Franklin. He even played on Mr. Bojangles, that song back in the Mr. day. Bojangles. And he came up with Muscle Shoals and Dwayne Allman back in the day. They, yeah, they, were, yeah. they were like the band right, right. Know, and, uh, early on. And then he kind of stepped away from that and just was a, a, a total session guy around New York and everything. And uh, so Anthony Jackson, you know, you know, bum 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 I mean, he cut that track when he was like 17, man, you know, <laughs> and we, he's not in the film, but we did interview him and he's, he's in our bonus uh, section. You know, there's just so many, so many tremendous uh, players that were involved in what this. What about Sting? You guys like Sting? You know, it's funny for me. I, I like, like him fine. He's, he's great. But yeah. I mean, it's it's a weird thing for me is that when I was young, I loved the police. Yeah. Like when I, around the time when I started playing rock bass too, I really loved the police, but it's the one band yeah. that just, and it's really the only band. Like any band I listen to, I go put on the record and I'm like, yeah. I love it as much as when I was 15 or 20 or whatever. But like I put on the police, I got the greatest hit. So sorry, I can't put on. I was just like, mm. <laughs> it didn't hold up for you. It's, just, it's the only band ever. And I still know it's good. Yeah. Like the craftsmanship is good. The scene yeah. is good. But it just, I don't know. It's weird. I saw People the police. think I'm a moron. I saw the police at the, uh, I think it was not Santa Anita. It was the Hollywood, uh, the racetrack, the, right. the, the horse yeah. races. Recently or back in the day? No, back in the day, man. I was uh, I was in high school. It, 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 yeah, it was great. I mean, it, Thompson Twins opened up. And uh, I remember they had like a tea break in the middle of their show, like yeah. an intermission. Right. But it was them having tea. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty cool. Sting's, Sting's always been super cool to me. And um, obviously, he's a, a, a musician who tries different things he's into experimenting yeah. he's into expanding and, and he's one of those guys so he's sort of like bono where the the personality sort of starts to hinder the appreciation of the music after a certain you don't have to say anything on that but i just like it, it's just sort of interesting like with sting because I, I i like the police but at some point i'm like sting just becomes sting and i can't separate right. him from for me he's one of those guys who's a really good musician yeah, yeah. without doubt he's yeah. a great musician and he's willing to try lots of different stuff it just I don't cry or or go to or, you don't get I, moved. I, I don't get moved. Yeah, but I well, love, but I respect it. I just don't get moved. Now I got in trouble from some people in Canada for sort of dismissing Rush the other day. Uh, I, I don't uh -oh. remember who I was. I was talking to Albini, and you know Albini, you know, he'll dra he'll drag you down to some places where you end up saying things that you might not. But really I'll tell think. you something. Rush is like the easiest band in the world to make fun of. Yeah, that cra you know Geddy Lee's voice and it's yeah. funny and, and the and million drums and, and all the million drums, but. They're so unique, yeah, and they're so rad, and they're such good players, and there's nothing else like them, right? And they're Rush, and like I loved Rush. Like when I first started playing yeah. bass, like I wanted the virtuoso stuff, so yeah. I liked. That's why I had Hemispheres that album, yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah. I'd listen to that and Hendrix, and and then I got into punk rock, and it all changed. But, but I, I. I don't know. I love Rush. Well, that's interesting because, like, you, you guys I love had, Rush too. You yeah. do? Yeah. Okay, oh, it's yeah. on the record. So, but you guys had so much in place um technique wise and then like because i hear you talking about jazz with a certain love and, and you obviously have love for it too and then you sort of get into punk rock or you get into thrash or whatever do you do but you didn't you never felt like you were abandoning some other thing that that had more integrity no no because i, I integrity is what you make of it i mean when you the, the notes that you hit how you play how you perform how you create 
you know that to me is integrity um you know it's like i feel like i've earned my stripes sure all these years <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, i just yeah. turned 51 and um youngster I, I feel blessed you know i mean i played with all my heroes it's amazing and, still um, so i don't know i don't i don't know really how to answer that well hey, let me I, ask you I, a different really? way would you like to make a jazz record I could make a jazz record right now. You got some recording gear. I could do it. I tr I'll try. I mean, I don't know how good it's going to be, but would you I like can to swing. make a jazz record? Yeah, hell yeah, I've made jazz records, but or played on them. Yeah, but the but the thing for me, like in terms of that question, it was never about abandoning anything. Like when I got into punk rock, it didn't mean oh I can't like Zeppelin now because it's not right. cool, or I can't listen to Louis Armstrong every day when I go home, like I still do. But what, the thing for me, it was just a huge lesson in it that really that changed my life was that it wasn't about, up until that point, it was like I was really into virtuosity and musicianship. Right. And punk rock taught me that that the the emotional intent and the purity and in the intent is where the integrity is. It's not in the... Style. You know, it's, yeah, it's not in the style or how you know athletic you are on your instrument. Like, I appreciate virtuosity, yeah. and that never left. I still appreciate virtuosity, but I don't appreciate virtuosity for the sake of showing... You know to prove how fast you are. Empty like, noodling. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know what I mean. I just yeah. like, like for me, like I would like the Germs are a really big band for me. I listen to that record GI over and over and over, and it like it really affected me in a profound way. Where it, and I was like, you know, it's remedial music. Yeah. But it it you know no one else could do it. Right. And it's just one of those things. It's like you know like a great painter like Basquiat or something where it's like you know a billion guys have copied him. No one can make a painting that looks like that. Yeah. And it's just like childish scribbling. Right. I mean, you know what I mean. No, absolutely. So. so but that was music too. Like I never stopped liking shit that I like. Police is the only band, and I still don't <laughs> not like them. Right. I just don't want to put it on. Like I used to put it on. Like I'd pull over and be like, "Fuck," you know, "Regatta de Blanc," that record, you know, yeah, all that shit. Like it really affected me. I yeah. went to go see him play. The form blew my mind. Stuart Copeland's drums. I'm a. I was sitting behind him. Yeah. And and on the toms it said "fuck off, you cunt," <laughs> which he did for Sting because yeah. he fucking hated Sting. Right. Right. You know. And oh, and um. <laughs> really. Yeah. And and before. Before this, the thing I really like was before the show they played the whole Bob Marley Exodus album in the in the form really loud. Oh, that's awesome! And that was yeah. rad. Well, you know, I think that's the amazing thing about rock music in general is that it's not about the whether the music is simple is what you bring to it feeling wise and yeah. you know how you communicate with it, right? Exactly. You know, it's. it's Did you get to expression. meet Jocko? I I had an encounter with him yeah. actually. Uh, there was a guitar show in uh, Hollywood called the, L the Los Angeles Guitar Show. It was at the Merlin Hotel. Um, I believe that's now like a, a, a Holiday Inn Express or something. And each room was a different guitar company yeah. you know, or a cable company or an amp company. And I was in this one room and I heard this really loud. It was actually kind of annoying. Like the bass was just turned way up and the walls were shaking. It was kind of scary. And the windows were rattling. And I went in that room kind of pissed off. And I look in there and it's Jocko. And there's no one else. There's one guy in the room. Yeah, like a, yeah, like yeah. a rep. And uh, and he's sitting down and he's playing this bass. And I was like, whoa. He was like walking into a, a brick wall. He's like, whoa. You know. Yeah. This is heavy. Yeah. I didn't say anything to him. But I took a knee about 10 feet from him. And he's just like staring at me. But I had this big smile. And I was just so amazed. <laughs> and the room filled up. I mean, within like. A minute, it was yeah. packed, you know, and everybody was just in there, and um, 
And he started playing grooves and, and quotes from his own stuff, also quotes from Jerry Jamat and, you know, James Jamerson. And he's looking at everybody right in the eyes. He's not smiling. He's yeah. looking at us and sizing us up, like almost like I can kick all of your asses <laughs> right now. And so don't even don't even mess with me. Because at that time he wasn't in the in you know he was having a hard time. Right. 1985. And um, but we were just so stoked to have him even size us up. It was yeah, like yeah. this is great. And then his girlfriend at the time, and she was beautiful. She was like a kind of tall surfer gal and uh, and she i never forget she had like a pair of uh jean shorts on and she had like an op hoodie on and she had two cans of beer in her pocket one in each pocket and she said jocko c- come on let's go you know just like that straight yeah. out and he got up he put the bass down and he left us all there hanging and we were super stoked <laughs> Yeah, she's like, quit, quit fooling around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Come on, let's go. Quit fooling around playing bass. Let's go. You know, <laughs> let's go yeah. drink some beer. Let's go have a beer. Yeah, let's go get high. But it was like, it was, it was crazy because I, I was so shy back then, and now I'm like, man, I would have bought him a burger or something. You know, we would have gone out, gone to the beach, and yeah. gone she, surfing or something. Well, she probably wouldn't allow it. Yeah, right. May, maybe not. Maybe. Well, you made this. You made this amazing movie. And how Thanks. long? How long did it take to to make it? Nearly six years. And um, what I, was the holdup? Well, each year we get new treasures. Like Joni came on board year four. Yeah. Jerry Jamat came on board uh, year three and a half. Um, you know, Paul Marchand, my director, he he's a trooper. I mean, he's been there for the six years. And, and honestly, at one point, I think he was losing his mind and he needed a break. And Scorsese called him. And he went and made a film with Scorsese, edited for him for six months in New York, and and that was that was that needed to happen. That was the only time he left for an extended amount of time. And he actually had been offered a lot of gigs with a lot of big directors, and um, and he's just recently was doing uh, he's still kind of think doing something with Morgan Neville, who did that film Twenty Feet from Stardom. Oh, so yeah. he was a real soldier and a trooper, and. Uh, uh, we had Stephen Kayak for a while who had uh, done that film, uh, uh, Scott Walker, 30th Century Man. And, uh, and, and, you know, every person that's been involved in this project as a producer or a, a whatever line producer or just helping us get there, you know, where we needed to go. I got to commend them because th- without these different people, these soldiers, I call them, we wouldn't be where we are now. And, um, and it's been a long haul and I, I've gone to, it's like I've gone to film school for six years. You know, I learned so much and I could not do this again like that because <laughs> yeah. I found myself in central Florida at like four in the morning, you know, <laughs> like with one of Jocko's friends, you know, driving back from kind of Melbourne, Florida down to Fort Lauderdale and, and, and I'm just, and he's falling asleep at the wheel literally. And I'm hitting him going, wake up, wake up. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't want to die in Florida. I'm like, geez, I've got, you know, I got my two kids and my wife back home. It's like, what am I doing? You yeah. know, questioning everything, but, um, you know, battled through it. But again, I, I have to thank every one of those people. It's, you know, again, this guy Bob Bobbing, who you know uh, uh, really helped us with the early years, and he was really carrying the torch for Jocko early on when nobody cared, and got a lot of magazine covers for Jocko and helped get him back on the map. And I think things happen for a reason. Yeah. You know, you just I, I inherited this. You know, I had when I first met Jocko's son in 1996. 
you know, I in Fort Lauderdale, I said, someday you got to make a film about your father. You know, it, it it needs to be done. His influence is so broad and wide to so many different types of musicians and and uh, like Flea or Getty or, you know, who a lot of gospel players, funk players, R&B, punkers, rock, whatever. And um, he said, yeah, yeah, we're going to do it, you know. And over time, I get the occasional call. And finally, I got involved in the project. And then I really just decided I would finance it and and that's it that's where we are because to make a film like this of quality you know you got to just really dive in all the way and was the family always with you or was that a struggle it it, it you know on and off i mean yeah. there were times where i'm sure they 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 hated us and there were times where they kind of loved us and now we all we're all cool we've always been cool I don't blame them because along a journey, along the way, you have a journey like this, and you're going to come up with edits and cuts that people aren't going to like for whatever reason. And at the time, you're kind of questioning why, but then you realize what. Like now, I know why. You know, I yeah. know why the film is great and what it took to get here. And I look back to those times where I was like, "Well, man, what's going on? Whatever." I'm just trying to keep just trying to keep people happy and make sure I had my creative vision still intact uh-huh. and take care of my director. But take care of the family too, you know. So when's it going to release? Is going to release in th- theaters? So, and so yeah, we're do, we've done a a, a number of uh, film festivals and independent theatrical uh, screenings around the U.S. But we are going to release VOD on December one, mm-hmm. and um, on uh, on the the twenty seventh of November, we're actually uh, going to release on DVD. So you go to your local record shop, whatever, you know, you'll find it there, uh, even places like Guitar Center. Um, and then on November 22nd, we're doing the L.A. premiere at the Ace Theater in downtown Los Angeles. And um, that's going to be a, a really amazing event because my dream was to screen this thing at the Ace Theater. It's such a beautiful venue. And to be able to do that was a dream come true. And we're going to have some live music Felix Pastorius who's an amazing bass player and I, I know you can vouch for that that's his son he's a badass he's yeah. a badass he's he's playing with his, his band from Brooklyn called Hipster Assassins and then I'll be playing a set of music with uh, uh, another incredible bass player Armand Saboleko and, and actually Brooks Wackerman who's the younger drummer of uh, Chad Wackerman and he's been with me a long time, and um, you know maybe we're gonna you know twist Flea's arm to get up and play a special song with us. <laughs> of the, How, will that take <laughs> a, a lot of twisting? No. <laughs> <laughs> we, we tracked a, a special a song called "Come On, Come Over," and uh, it was all sort of it, it all sort of blossomed off of a jam that we had at uh, you and Flea at Flea's studio, yeah, with Armand, and it's so great, it's so funky. Oh, that sounds like yeah. a blast. Yeah. Now, what, are you guys recording now? Um, yep. New yep. Chili Peppers record? Yep. Yeah? Yep. How's that going? Great. <laughs> he's not allowed to talk. Oh, he's not allowed to talk about it? <laughs> you, oh, it's, it's top secret? I mean, they can't stop me, but I just, you know, it's we're recording yet. Who, the label? I'm just not going to talk about it. I, you know, I oh, just right, feel right. like it's not appropriate. You guys all getting along? Um, yeah, yeah, we love each other. That's sweet. And you guys do this Metallica recording? Yes, we are. Yeah, how's that going? It's going great. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you'll have an album next year. <laughs> well, thanks for talking, fellas. I'm, I'm excited about the movie, and congratulations on finishing it. And it was great when I saw it. I'm sure I'm going to go in and watch the DVD again. All right. Well, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, we man. really appreciate it. Yeah, good to meet you guys. Nice to meet you, Mike. Right on. 
Fuck, man. It's exciting. It's exciting, man. I, it's exciting to have, uh, you know, modern rock royalty right here in the fucking garage. And Trujillo, they get, he brought me this little, uh, this little, little amp that, uh, that is signed. That's very nice of him. Brought me this little Ampeg thing that's signed by him and Flea. But I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not gonna play through it. I'll play though, man. I'll fucking play. Boomer Lee. 